1: I want to cross over to London quickly to catch up with Julian Lee, Bloomberg's oil strategist for, for what's going on. Julian, walk me through the moves.
2: I think there have been a number of things that have, have uh, driven this last little uh, leg up. Um, we had the uh, US inventory data yesterday, which showed another... Uh, drop in uh, stockpiles of, of crude and products. Uh, I think that has, has sort of fed into a slightly more bullish view. Uh, clearly, we've got the uh, Iran sanctions issue, President Trump's decision to, uh, um, to pull the US out of that deal, uh, which is looking, despite all the words coming out of the European Union, as though it is going to have a significant impact on Iran's oil exports. Uh, we are seeing shippers, insurers and refiners uh, all taking a very cautious approach to uh, future dealings with Iran. Yeah. I think you know that has an impact. And then we've had Goldman coming out with a report um, uh, you know talking up the price of oil and saying that it doesn't see uh, OPEC and shale being able to, uh, solve the, the any problems caused by uh, a disruption to Iran. I Julian, all those have fed in.
1: This week we had a report from the IEA suggesting that because of high crude prices, de- demand could take a bit of a hit. What does WTI north of seventy and Brent with an eighty handle mean for global oil demand?
2: Well, I think we are starting to see signs of, of some of that feeding through. We're certainly seeing uh, higher gasoline prices in the U.S. Uh, my own very unscientific study of petrol prices in the UK, which consists of looking at the posted price on the three uh, the three petrol stations I pass on my way into work. <laughs> um, you know, I, I now see uh, petrol in the UK creeping up. Uh, those yeah. prices, you know, they're back up at one thirty a litre. Uh, that's a price we haven't seen for some time in the UK so the, these higher crude prices are feeding through um, even in Europe where we you know we have very high fixed taxes on on petrol that tend to uh, limit the movements of petrol prices against crude uh, we're seeing it here and of course one of the things that happened during the, the downturn in prices was that a lot of the uh, consuming country governments in in the developing world in Asia and places like that began to take off some of the subsidies. Uh, that they had and some of the, the price caps that they had on on um, uh, gasoline and, uh, and other uh, oil products. And that means that as prices tick up again, so those are feeding through into to retail prices in some of the developing world as well. Um, and so we might see some of, of the demand growth beginning to ease there. Uh, we certainly yeah. saw some numbers coming out of India that suggested that while product uh, uh demand is still growing, it, 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 that rate of growth is slowing a bit.
1: Bloomberg's Julian Lee, great to catch up with you. Joining us from London on the latest moves and accrued price, Brent with an 80 handle really briefly for the first time since late 2014, trading right now at $79.88, WCI just north of 72. Joining us around the table in New York, really pleased to say, Chris Crisanti, Crisanti Capital Management, CEO. Chris, from the commodity price story and trying to push that view through equities, Really difficult last year, despite the rally in crude. Is it getting a little bit more straightforward now?
3: I think so, Jonathan. What you're seeing here is a long cycle finally playing itself out. There's been underinvestment in the oil fields for now four years, and at the same time, you're seeing increased demand. So you've got that great, from a from an investor standpoint, you've got that great synergy of under underinvestment, yeah. shortage and greater demand. So we really like the oil service companies right now. You're gonna to have to dig more holes, you're gonna to have to find more oil, and it's getting harder and harder in, in spite of the, the, the image, the superficial image, that it's easy to frack in the United States.
1: We have had a 20%, close to 20% rally, in crude prices right. in 2018. Through much of last year, through this rally, the equity investor just didn't want to buy it. Right? Are we seeing capitulation now, Chris? As far as you're concerned, and I think are we you seeing, seeing it, it right. in the majors. Are we seeing it in the big integrated players? You're seeing
3: it in the majors. You're certainly seeing it in the domestic U.S. players like EOG. Where you haven't seen it yet again is the oil service companies. And we don't think this is a head fake, Jonathan. We think this is a real multi-year move with you know with fits and starts. But we think over the next two years, oil will be higher even than it is now.
0: Chris, good morning. Good morning, it, Very simply here, are people in this market, are taxicab drivers talking about where we are in the market? I don't sense it, but are they?
3: No, Tom. It's not like it was in the late '90s that you and I remember, where you get you get in, you'd get stock tips from your taxi and drivers yeah. and your shoe guys.
0: Am I getting stock tips from a mutual fund manager? I mean, are the institutions in this market
3: to the extent that there are still humans that are mutual fund managers? Yes, you probably would. But what we're seeing now is the gravitation towards Fang continues. Uh, and, you know, you have Amazon and Netflix both up 50%, 60 70% just mm-hmm. this year. And then the rest of the market lagging behind, a phenomenon we also saw in the late 90s. Is
0: that, well, there's a revenue growth. Everybody wants revenue Evenue, growth. Everybody wants
3: to... top-line growth. You, you certainly have it in those companies. The problem is the earnings growth is lagging there. And sooner or later, again, like the late 90s, folks will, if the economy slows or something else, those, mm-hmm. the, those multiples will just stick out like a sore thumb.
0: Can you own less sexy industrials that are showing marginal revenue growth without nearly the multiples of these fancy stuff
3: Sure I think you can if you if you if you define industrials broadly like Schlumberger and Halliburton yeah. or or Lockheed Martin a defense contractor mm-hmm. that's selling more expensively than it usually does but is also growing its top line again that's important uh much more strongly because of the new F35 than it than it usually
1: does Yeah I'm going to catch up with Savita Subramaniam of uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch a little bit later Oh, this would be
0: on one of your other platforms? It would be on one of my other franchises. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) And she's got a theory now that that, that Chris, now is the time to be buying old economy equities and to shift away from the new economy equities because we're about to go into a big capital. From her mouth to God's ear, Jonathan. That's right. is, Is that what you're looking for too?
3: sure because you know we're paying 10 or 11 times earnings for say wells fargo we're we're paying 12 times earnings for comcast these are all bread and butter terrific balance sheets and relatively inflation proof uh, excuse me recession proof companies so yeah that's what we'd prefer to buy instead of netflix and amazon that's been the wrong way to go but the safer way to go i think and and then i soon i think it'll be both the safer way and the right way to go well i'm interested
1: ahead. in this word safe let's explore right. the word safe what's sure. safe about it when these big tech companies have really strong secular growth stories and fantastic earnings growth as well. What's safe about going the other way?
3: Well, you know, there's the old saying Mm. that that, um, there's no investment that's so good it can't be ruined by a high enough entry price. So So if you're going to pay 120 times for Netflix or 110 times for Amazon, you better hope that those earnings grow by leaps and bounds Mm. for a decade or more. And that's just something that... Frankly, has never happened before.
0: Chris Casanti, thank you so much. Greatly sure appreciate it this morning. Uh, long conversation on value and growth. Look for that across all of our uh, platform. John Faro, Aura out oh, with a tweet. Am I? This is a British phrase, which John's going to have to explain to me. What's that? Am I the only one sick to the back teeth of the royal wedding coverage? <laughs> what is sick to the back teeth? Is that a British phrase?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. What what does that mean? I I can't imagine. It just means you're totally fed up. (laughs) Totally fed up. And I I can tell you I am totally fed up. Of the royal wedding oh, coverage. Come on. I have no interest in it whatsoever. You have to come over to the keynotes and well, Are you, you, you going to have a party? No, we do, a royal take out from, party? St-
0: we do takeout from Starbucks, but we do put it <laughs> in the royal China with, uh, you know. I can imagine, Prince I can Harry imagine and, you
1: doing that. I imagine you know, Mrs. Keene would hate that, but th- that's a you thing to do to we go to Starbucks you know, the, and put it in China.
0: Yeah, but the, the royal, China, we're doing a surveillance special.
1: On the Royal Wedding? Yeah, you're you're can part you, of it. Can you count me out? No, no, you're part, you're part no of it. I have no interest. You're going to be from a pub near Windsor Castle. I'm happy to go to the pub. I'm just not so keen on the coverage. <laughs>
3: no invitation,
1: John. Chris, Chris Grisanti that. wants to come to the pub, too.
0: Yeah. See, everybody's on board, John, except you. Yeah. I'm on board with the pub, Francine's
3: song. on board, and she's Italian.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just remember, not everyone okay, who is I, British okay. is crazy okay, about let, the Royal Let me wedding. give you
0: a question quickly here that's sure, appropriate. Sure, go on quick. Is Beckham invited?
1: I don't know who's invited. I don't know who's invited. I haven't even checked the list. I don't even read the article. So I have no interest in this.
0: Libby Cantrell with us. So we had a lot of fun an hour ago with Libby because we really tried to get away from the cable TV back and forth of the scandals and all that, and actually talk policy. And we talked NAFTA, and I think we can redux that here. But far more importantly to me is what does Congress do as they stagger to midterms? I mean, is there any, I mean, other than trade, I get it. And there's a few other, what do they do all day?
4: Yeah, they're not, they're not doing much. Um, they The House is going to their credit is about to consider a regulatory relief bill next week that looks likely to pass and will be signed into law. And so that will be actually a relatively significant accomplishment for Republicans that I'm sure you'll hear on the campaign trail a lot. But outside of that, you know, they they're supposed to break for recess in August. I wouldn't be surprised if that's not pushed up Um, and we don't see Speaker Ryan letting out his caucus you know, mid July or so, just just given that, that that very fact that Paul Ryan will think that his folks will be more effective mm-hmm. on the campaign trail than in Washington, not doing very much.
1: Palace intrigue matters, and it matters for policy. Palace intrigue. Palace intrigue matters. <laughs> Let's not go there. That's, that's, you just need anything. Go you a royal Go a royal wedding. Gosh, living. John, you're Help obsessed. me, please. I'm coming to Pimco. <laughs> I'm leaving Bloomberg, Spain. We're talking about the royal wedding every day. <laughs> um, Peter Navarro. And a a reported spat with the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, in his behaviour around Chinese talks. He wasn't going to be around the table this week, reportedly, and now he is going to be around the table this week. How important is it for these individuals to get on the same page?
4: Well, it's important for sure, obviously, when you're negotiating with China, uh, you would like the country to have a united front. However, in some ways, this is just emblematic of a rift that, as you know, has been going on for for 18 months now. Yeah. Um, and this is really symbolic of something pretty greater in terms of sort of philosophical and ideological differences within the White House, especially on trade and especially as it relates to, to China. Secretary Mnuchin seems to be much more in the vein of, in some ways, President Trump, being more transactionary, um, trying to get some sort of you know, tangible concessions from China, spiking the ball, calling it a victory, and then moving on. I think Peter Navarro and then to some extent Bob Lighthizer, who's a, a pretty important character in this whole... You know, sort of palace intrigue here. He's the U.S. Trade Representative, um, and he's been very hawkish on China, really, his entire public life as well. Um, I, you know, I so so I think that the divisions here are real, and I think this latest spat or whatever, whatever you want to call it, is just emblematic of of the deeper fissures here in, the, in in the administration.
1: The president wants an international trade win, and he could well be close to getting one with China. And then you get the likes of Peter Navarro blowing up, reportedly in China, that compromises things. The president really close to a win on North Korea with a summit in the next couple of months. And then uh, John Bolton, Mm. the uh, national security advisor, (laughs) blowing that up potentially by bringing up the Libya model and the North Koreans pushing back. Can everyone get behind the president's vision uh, well, and deliver well, and, a win?
4: Sure. And I think the question is, what is the president's vision to some extent, right? And I think President Trump has very deliberately put in people here that have, you know, represents sort of a spectrum of views. I think that seems very intentional and and, and very and very deliberate. Um you know, again, I think on on China it's a little bit different because, you know, it's interesting talking to folks in in across the administration, but also on Capitol mm. Hill. I mean, there's a deep um, concern about China's state capitalism and how it's going to impact our country in the yeah. longer term. So while you know Secretary Mnuchin may want um, uh, you know a win on the trade deficit, and maybe President Trump wants that too, I think there's a lot of unanimity yeah. across Washington that they want something deeper. They want concessions, uh, structural concessions. Interesting. I don't think China's necessarily willing to, to willing to give that.
0: What's the ostentatiousness of Washington now? We had the Trump people show up the Trump Hotel all that, has the culture of your Washington changed?
4: Uh, you know, I think, and I think folks have said this, I, this isn't necessarily um, idiosyncratic to their unique to the, to the Trump administration, but it is much more polarized now. Right. I mean, we've talked about this, you know, yeah. when folks on, and I was on the Hill in the early aughts, you know, we used to, go out with the other party. Our bosses would get together socially. Right. That just doesn't happen anymore. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, has the feel and tenor of Washington changed under the yeah. Trump administration? Sure. I think it's just, in some ways, continued okay. a trend that was existed there before. How much does a wedding dress cost? I am not going to get pulled no, into that, that How please. Are you
1: kidding? Are
0: you kidding? How much does a wedding dress cost in America? I am not. I know. I know you know. Come on, That's why we're asking you.
1: You got married? Recently, Tom Kane. (laughs) How
0: much does a wedding dress cost? No, no, dress is plural. I will will have to say,
4: though. How much does a wedding dress cost? I can't believe we're going there on Bloomberg. But I regret paying so much for my wedding dress. There we go. You know, news it's news. just did you go it one time. <laughs> exactly.
1: did and it go sits there? And John, in the office. Look, just the don't ever let Cambridge's Tom drag you into cost, any of John, this. John, John. It's just so easy.
0: 250,000 pounds for the Duchess of Cambridge's wedding dress. <laughs> That's pharaoh-like. <laughs>
1: We're going to catch up with Federico Santi, Eurasia Group associate, to catch up with him about what's um, what's going on with the Italian government as Five Star and League agree on a final government programme. What's in the programme, Federico, and what should we be looking for in Italy?
5: Well, there's a few fairly uh, worrisome aspects uh, to the the programme. A uh, 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 draft was leaked earlier in the week, which uh, had a lot of people worried. Mentioned introducing a mechanism for leaving the currency union, uh, in addition to calls for the ECB to write off as much as 250 billion in Italian debt. Those most worrying proposals, uh, to be honest, we're we're always non-starters from a political perspective, but have also been removed from the draft reportedly. Uh, But some other uh, aspects which we already knew about, uh, so plans that were widely advertised during the election campaign, I think are equally as problematic. Uh, To sum up, I think both both parties are calling for a significant fiscal expansion, uh, which of course goes uh, clearly against European rules on um, uh, requirements for continued fiscal consolidation. Also keeping in mind, of course, Italy's very large uh, public debt burden, right? So I think yeah. uh, this probably sets up a, a pretty ugly fight with the European Commission, probably this fall around the time whether the Italian government will be called on to uh, to write a new yeah. budget.
1: Just walk me through the process before we get to the policy, quickly, Federico. They have to go to the president now, decide who the prime minister is. How does this work? Um, before this government is really put into place.
5: Uh, Correct. Uh, It sounds like they're close to finalizing finalizing this coalition agreement. There's a few sticking points still. They still haven't agreed on a prime minister, which is a small detail, of course. Uh, But once there is an agreement, so presumably before the end of the week, uh, they will announce it, at which point they'll have a new round of consultations. Uh, I'm I'm referring to the party leaders with the uh, president of the republic, uh, presumably early next week, possibly on Monday, at which point the president will appoint the new government, uh, paving the way for a vote of confidence, again, presumably um, towards the end of next week. Ironically, the,
1: the bullish view around Italy, Federico, is that it doesn't matter who's in power because no one can get anything done. Talk to me about their margin in the Senate and their ability to drive through this policy. Mm-hmm.
5: There is some truth to that, for sure. Uh, they face a number of constraints uh, the Constitutional Court. They have a slim majority in Parliament, as, uh, as you pointed out. It's only six seats. Um, also, European rules are fairly stringent. I think also at some point they also have to uh, sort of come to terms with the... Uh, likely reaction from financial markets to any effort to significantly increase the deficit. Uh, it doesn't mean that it can uh, sort of cause any damage in the process, however. I think, as I said, the program is actually quite uh, radical, particularly in terms of their proposals on, on fiscal policy. And there's been a lot of yeah. complacency in the markets, which is probably justified to a large extent given the, um, you know, very supportive external condition, conditions in terms of monetary policy, uh, energy prices, the recovery in the broader Eurozone, and so on. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't mean that will last so i think at some point there'll have to be a moment of reckoning
1: let's talk about radical policy in the moment of reckoning there was a report over the last few days about this 250 billion euro debt pile of italian debt at the european central bank that reportedly at one point these two parties were looking to have forgiveness to have that written off then there was a conversation about changing the accounting around it so that it didn't count towards debt to gdp ratios federico what are they trying to engineer here to enable them to spend more
5: um, yeah, exactly. That got a lot of attention I think triggered a fairly sizable market reaction, which, which we hadn't seen uh, up until now. Uh, to be fair, the proposals were, were as I said, uh, really non-starters from the very beginning. N- neither of those things is, is, are really up to the Italian government to decide. Both instituting a, a Euro exit mechanism at the EU level will require agreement from all other member states, which is highly unlikely. The same applies to calls for the ECB to write off all its uh, holdings of, of Italian debt. Uh, the mere fact that those proposals, whoever made it to the draft agreement, I think show at the very least a fairly uh, right. worrying lack of understanding of, of you know, even basic tenets of Eurozone governance. Right. So I think it shows that this government still very much has a Euroskeptic slant, uh, despite the fact that they've moved away from those more radical proposals. Uh, it right. also shows that simply they're... Pretty much out of the depth, I would say.
0: What does this coalition mean to the legendary and authentic North-South divide of Italy? Does the North win today? Is that what it means?
5: This is fairly unprecedented in that you have two parties that are uh, respectively very strong in the north and in the south, whereas historically you always had governments that had more, uh, you know, widespread support uh, or more balanced support throughout the country, I should say. Uh, And this is really one of the main obstacles, I think, that they will face. they have very different constituencies, and there are severe constraints, I think, on on, uh, the the leeway that the government will have on on fiscal policy. So deciding where to allocate those scarce resources, I think, will be a very difficult decision for them to make, whether they have to go to the more productive northern regions or the less productive south.
0: Fernando, thank you so much. Short notice uh, this morning from Italy. Greatly appreciate that.
1: EM's been a big story with U.S. rates higher and the dollar stronger. And Harvard economist Carmen Reinhardt has weighed in, turning heads big time through this week with comments on the uh, asset class, on emerging markets, saying they're in worse shape now than during the global financial crisis in 2008. I want to bring in Alberto Ramos, Goldman Sachs' co-head of Latin America Economic Research. And he joins us now. Alberto, can you tell me why it's not quite that bad?
6: Uh, well, it's a very interesting question. Certainly the external environment is becoming a lot more challenging uh, for many emerging markets. If you screen out across the EM landscape, you can identify a number of countries with ex- large external funding needs. Argentina comes to mind. So the going is gonna be be a little bit more testy. I think access to external funding will be a little bit more selective and more expensive. You know, Some countries will adjust well to the new reality. Some other ones will see probably bouts of volatility.
1: Alberto, which ones do you think will adjust well to the new realities.
6: I think about Brazil, for instance, where the current account deficit is basically zero. Right now, their external funding needs are um, very modest. The uh, inflation is quite low, rates are low. So I think they will navigate to our transition into a new reality uh, in much better shape than countries that do not share the same characteristics. Again, we talked about Argentina, um, where the currency blew up over the last, uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, yeah. It's a country that uh, is very, very, uh, needs to maintain steady access to external markets. And that proposition has now been Questions.
1: Is there an opportunity in Argentina right now? Because the Financial Times reporting over the last day that the the funds controlled by Michael Hassenstab, the CIO of uh, Franklin Templeton, has bought $2. 5 billion, $2. 2.5 billion dollars, 2.25 billion dollars in Argentinian bonds. Reportedly, Alberto, was there an opportunity there? Does that opportunity still exist?
6: Look, the financial, you know, price handles are quite different. You know, the exchange rate there moved a lot, so did local interest rates. This is a problem, but a problem with a solution. The authorities were very steadfast in reacting to the pressures. They hiked yeah. interest rates to very distressed levels, forty percent. The exchange rate has moved significantly, so you can reach a point where the exchange rate is sufficiently weakened, and local interest rates are sufficiently high to make it a very interesting investment opportunity. It really depends what is your time horizon and your capacity to stomach variations in the PNL. Sharp ratio, the risk-adjusted return is probably still not very compelling. If you have a very short-term horizon, we think, moreover, the longer horizon, with the IMF right. uh, coming to provide financial assistance, you know, may, that may change the attractiveness of re-engaging in Argentina.
0: Alberto Ramos for this with, with Goldman Sachs, as we looked at Latin America and, and, of course, worldwide as well. With uh, EM, the answer, Alberto, is at some point these troubled international dynamics need to be cleared. Do we clear troubled EM economies, troubled EM currencies, troubled EM debt the same way we did, say, with Ecuador in 1998 or that we did in 2000? Do we, do we, do we have the mechanisms in place to clear out these problems as they occur?
6: Look, it's it, it's a very differentiated reality. There's a lot of heterogeneity when I talk about EM. Uh, uh, I think, you know, many countries will go through a process of adjustment, uh, but avoiding a crisis. Like an adjustment is not a crisis if the reality is different. Access to external funding will be uh, more selective and at a different price. So they cannot count on external levers in order to grow and develop. So this is basically a shock to their funding conditions, a shock to the capital account. Countries that are more dependent on uh, abundant and cheap liqu- liquidity they have to adjust. Adjust. Perhaps the adjustment will be a lot more severe. And some of them, depending on the policy response, may even experience a sharp drop in activity and eventually even a crisis. And I think those are more isolated episodes than, you know, if you paint a broad brush across EM. I think EM today is in better shape how better than they were before.
1: Just how manageable is the debt load, though, if rates do start to continue to grind higher? Fitch pointing out in a report this week that EM debt has now grown, outstanding debt has grown to 90 90- Eighteen trillion dollars from five trillion a decade earlier that's a substantial increase can EM handle higher rates from here
6: it is indeed. It depends debt that is being uh, warehoused. You know, is it debt of the public sector or of the corporates? Uh, is it hedged? You know, these economies have also expanded. You know, so as the share of GDP, perhaps the numbers are not as scary. Uh, but it, it is a, a challenge. Point. You know, they they have you know they have uh, they have uh, uh, increased their external yeah. leverage. That's why it's important at this stage when the external conditions are shifting to a reality that <clears throat> is less supportive. Right. I would not call necessarily the external environment as adverse to them. It's just less friendly than what it used to be. So that requires more discipline. Both. Monetary and fiscal, you know, that should be, to some, to some yeah. extent, the end of the story. It does not necessarily yeah. need to trigger very perverse dynamics that make, you know, these uh, these economies enter into a crisis
0: very quickly. Does it? Is it more of IMF to the rescue?
6: It will, uh, but again, you know, going back to Argentina, uh, does not solve their underlying problem. Their underlying problem is a very large fiscal deficit, but provides a steady source of funding, much cheaper than what they would uh, benefit if they had to access the market. But does mm-hmm. not solve the problem. The MF is not going to solve their problem. Their problem needs to be solved by you know the right implementation of the right uh, policies.
0: This has been wonderful, Alberto Ramos, Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate this briefing. He is with Goldman Sachs